tools for living, room to grow, a space of grace to become everything God wants us to be. You're listening to The Living Room Podcast with Joanna Weaver, Episode 74. Well, I don't think that any of us have made it through these past few years without feeling pretty overwhelmed and a bit emotional at times. It seems that everywhere you look, there's just so much bad news. And if we're not careful, we can lose sight of the beautiful in all of the ugly. Well, in today's episode, Sarah Clarkson is going to be sharing her own personal journey. And oh, you guys, it is a powerful, powerful story. But then she takes us into practical tools and tips for ways that you and I can look for good, even amid all the bad. Well, it's my joy to have Sarah Clarkson with us today. Her new book is This Beautiful Truth, How God's Goodness Breaks Into Our Darkness. And oh my goodness, Sarah, this is a beautiful book and you are a beautiful writer. Welcome to the living room. Oh, thank you so much. It is a real pleasure to be here. Uh, Well, we were talking a little bit before you came on. You are a a vicar's wife. I'm a pastor's wife, so kind of the same, same thing. But you are living in England. Oh, my goodness. That's like a dream (laughs) to me. (laughs) How did that all happen? Well, I I tell people it's a long story. But um, basically, as I told you, I... um, I ended up in in Oxford, England when I was 30 years old. I decided I wanted to do something different. I was kind of in a, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with my life sort of place? And thought, I'll just do this year-long course in theology. It's something different. I love Oxford. It's the land of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, who I both love. And um, I ended up, to make a long story short, falling in love with theology and staying five years to complete two degrees. And then I fell in love with my husband, um, who is actually Dutch, but is now, um, he works, he's a priest in the Church of England. So we have, uh, we got married, uh, it's five years ago now, and um, yes, have three little little ones and are living on the South Coast where he's working in a church. Oh my goodness. So was that just kind of surreal? I know you're a big reader. In fact, you wrote a book, <laughs> The Book Girl, A Guide to the Reading Life. So was it just kind of uh, just a dream come true to live in that place and in that setting? It really was. And in many ways continues to be. I mean, I was in Oxford for five years and that was, it is, it, it still feels like home whenever I go to Oxford. Mm. It is as good as you imagine it in the sense of its beauty and just the community and the the history. There's just a loveliness um, to it. And I have just loved, yeah, I really loved living in this place and we have taken such advantage of the countryside and history and, it's been a joy to kind of start our family here and do a lot of exploring that way. So yes, it is. I often feel that I've stepped into an Elizabeth Googe novel, who's one of my favorite of the English lady writers. <laughs> oh, that is so fun. Well, your mama, Sally Clarkson, is known by many of my listeners. And I know you guys have authored some books together. But this is a very personal book. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about it and what what kind of brought you to write it? Well, it's one of those books that I think was really kind of 20 years in the growing, but it's a book of the inward heart of the, it grew in the deep places inside of me and needed many years to, to come to the place where I could even access it and write about it. But it's, it's the story in many ways, um, kind of the story of my wrestle with God in the midst of mental illness. So kind of starting when I was 17 and, um, had had kind of, I think, 
um, warning shots of OCD, which was what I was eventually diagnosed with most of my life. But um, as I later found out, it's not uncommon for, for it to really strike hard in t- the teenage years. And um, I just was plunged into this world of, um, of mental illness that just meant deeply disturbing and awful things in my mind, images that came, I couldn't control them, the sense of the world just unraveling around me, and I had no control over my mind or my thoughts. And I think in the midst of that, you know, I had been I had been raised in a Christian home. I believed everything about God that was good. And suddenly it just felt to me like everything I knew came into question. Mm. Um, how could God be good and allow evil to literally be inside of my mind? How could he not take that away? How could he allow it? How could he create a world that was possible? And, um, you know, it's odd with, uh, you know, the, the anniversary of 9-11, because that was right around the time that for me that OCD began. And um, mm. I just remember kind of watching the world around me seem to fall to pieces and the world inside of me was going to pieces. And I just questioned so deeply, where is God? And I think that, you know, there were many years of wrestling that that came from that point. And in the midst of it, something I just really had to fight to get hold of again was got a sense of God's kindness, of his goodness. Um, I His existence wasn't necessarily my question as much, but whether he could be trusted, whether he was was tender towards me, I think was something that was a deep question of my heart. And what I found was that, um, you know, in the midst of everything, the arguments and the theology, because I read a lot of it, of course, it was, you know, beautiful and good, but those were not the things that helped me to come back to a place where I could engage with the living God. What did was experiences of his goodness in beauty. And and mm-hmm. what by beauty, I mean just the fullness of the way we can encounter him in the world in art and music, in the touch of people and friendships in, um, you know, nature began to take a huge role story. Um, and in these moments, I could stand kind of in the light of of a different and renewed vision where I felt like I could get my hands on him again. I could taste and see mm-hmm. in a sense, the possibility that there was a good and loving God who was coming to heal me and, and the whole broken world. So that's the book in a nutshell. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, we're living in a time where everything is upside down. Mm-hmm. And if we let our imagination grow, go wild, um, there's all sorts of possibilities that we can come up with. And I know some of the people out there listening are actually experiencing Mm -hmm. some of the fallout of COVID and, and um, just the unrest on so many levels in our world today. You know, I, I think all of us would like to know what is that journey back to the goodness of God when, when our trust has been shaken and all of a sudden, everything we thought we knew is called into question. What were some of the big, or were they a series of small ahas, or were there some big aha moments along the way? There were, I think, both. Um, I think, <laughs> two um, kind of related moments, um, oddly enough, was for me, and this will make me total nerd, but just, you know, bear with me. I just, I, I started reading the Lord of the Rings when I was um, in the, really the first months of my illness. And that was a, a point at which I just felt so disoriented. I couldn't read scripture. I couldn't engage with, with much theology. I felt so distrustful of God. Um, and we were moving in the midst of that. I just had so many questions and so much doubt, but I started reading this great novel and it just immersed me in a great story. And it was what I needed in a sense, just to, it kind of helps to, it was one of the few things that would help to help remove me from my thoughts. 
Um, mm. And in the midst of that, I found myself, and I think God has a sense of humor, I found myself immersed in this world where darkness is a reality that broods on every horizon. I mean, the the you know the dark Lord is <laughs> at the center of the book in his desire to cover the lands in darkness and despair. And I suddenly found myself in this story where the characters were required to engage with hope. And they often did that by crafting beauty, by their experiences of beauty, by being creating refuges in the world. And I began to question, um, you know, what does that look like in my own world? And I remember one day, you know, 17 year old, very angsty in a thunderstorm, sitting in my bed thinking, I just wish I could live in Middle Earth instead of real life. And had this kind of backstepping process of, wait, if Tolkien created Middle Earth and God created Tolkien, then God's reality must be even more epic and more beautiful. And there must be mm-hmm. meaning to my life in a way wow. that, you know, that ha- can can make my life and story as full of beauty and meaning as this as this book. And so in that sense, at that moment, I kind of had an epiphany of um, the story, I think, helped me to see along a different way of a, a vision. It helped me to glimpse a vision of reality in a really odd sort of way. Um, and a few months later, I remember sitting, um, I just finished the book and had my Bible open beside me because I was really trying to read the Bible again and had came to this passage in Deuteronomy where it said, choose this day, um, choose life, you know, hold fast to the Lord your God. And, and I, you know, had that and then Lord of the Rings, the other side where you have characters who say, I will, I will do what I must with the time that is given me, um, you know, no matter what. And I kind of had this feeling of, I have to choose. I can't, yeah. I can't disengage. And so I think that was, you know, this encounter with a beautiful story and the the knowledge of my own agency that came to me with it. Those were two huge moments in the early days that really shaped my, my wrestling with God um, and, and my discovery. Yeah. That is so powerful, Sarah. Um, I'm actually writing a book on trusting God, you know, and I I, I just asked the Lord to help me not be a Band-Aid, you know, like we kind of have our little Christian things, you just trust God. But, (laughs) But we have this, we have this tension between the goodness of the Lord and the evil that is so prevalent. And if we don't have a heavenly perspective, a bigger view of things, mm-hmm. then it's it really is jarring. And so I'm fascinated about how this story kind of gave you a glimpse of reality when it came to the spiritual. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit, what you came to see or believe or, or realize? Well, there's an aspect, and I think Lewis and Tolkien write about this superbly well, um, in which sometimes when we have encountered the world in such a way that it has drained us. And I think this is what suffering and grief and loss do to us. They drain the world of meaning. And they, I think one of the ways that evil works is to take all color and possibility and hope from us. It mm-hmm. closes the horizons of all that we can see. And um, a story, a piece of art, a piece of music, what they have the power to do is set us in a place where we have encountered a beauty, a goodness, a, um, a tangible loveliness that I think has the power then to allow us to see our lives afresh. Uh, I think it was, I get mixed up who quoted which thing, which way, but basically Tolkien and Lewis both talked about the way that stories can re-enchant our own worlds so that we go into stories where, um, I can't remember if it was Tolkien or Lewis that said this, um, you know, we encounter dragons and fairies and princesses just so that we can come back into our own world and, and realize afresh the, the magical, incredible reality of apples and sunsets and 
ocean and storm that, you know, our own world is so full of the person and presence and goodness of God. But sometimes we need to stand in the vision of a great story to help us see our world with new eyes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Yeah. I, and I'm not sure who it was who said it or wrote, I'm sure many have, but I think it was maybe C.S. Lewis who, who basically said, you know, you know, we have this problem of evil that makes people discount God. But on the mm. flip side, we've got this problem of good. Because yes. where did the good <laughs> come from? There has to be something bigger and more beautiful. And so how did you how did you kind of come to see God in a different light, even in the midst of, I can't even imagine how hard it was to be assaulted by evil that mm. was not of your own making. Like, I, I can't even begin to comprehend that, Sarah. You were raised in a home where I'm sure your mind and your heart was protected. And all of a sudden, it's not just the world out there that's evil, but it's attacking you from the inside. Ah, oh, girl, how were you able to pivot to see God as good in the middle of, of battling that inside? I think for me, um, a lot of the battle was my question of where God was in the midst of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, what, you know, because this was happening to me and I believed in his power and his love, I had to question where was his agency in this? What was his role? And um, I think something that really terrified me for a long time was this fear that God was somehow doing this to me, allowing this intimate evil in order to kind of zap me down and get me to behave right. There's this, Mm -hmm. I think, feeling sometimes, um, you know, kind of some of the things that people say to those who suffer in the gospels, but, you know, that, well, God, there's this just so you'll, you know, you, you will get this whatever, you know, benefit or you'll be better or you'll, And I think that I wrestled and wrestled with that and with how can God allow this? But, you know, there's so many questions and there's so much theology written about, you know, whether God allows all evil or whether he creates a world in which it's possible and whether free will and all these different things. But I think that the thing that most, that was the turning point for me to understand, not fully to understand, but to trust um, God's goodness towards me was the more that I came and encountering Christ. And I think mm-hmm. that's been in different ways for me because I think he is the figure of God by which we know God is with us in the darkness. And part of that for me was um, beginning to attend an Anglican church and receive the Eucharist um, in a way that I hadn't before in my life. Um, part of it was in these moments of beauty, realizing this is not impersonal. This is God's personal reality to me. Part of it was the faithfulness of of my mom and people like that who were physical presences of God's kindness. But I think that for me, a big, uh, the thing that made me turn my heart back towards faith and, you know, the, the full embrace of, of the Christian faith I'd grown up with was my increasing understanding, especially as I studied Jesus in the gospels, that God is not the God who stands apart from our suffering. He is the God who enters it. And mm. that is what I find at the heart of beauty. It's an incarnate beauty. It's a beautiful one who is mm. there in in the dusty and dark rooms of our heart, bringing light. And so, you know, I think it was through many small moments, through scripture, through friends, through these encounters with the beautiful, but it was Christ, I think, the beautiful one that made me realize mm. this is a God I can trust to redeem me and this world. Yeah, I think you... 
I think you kind of hit on it. It's the God who redeems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, if we didn't have a redeemer who could take the worst and work the best, mm-hmm. then we would be hopeless and helpless and in yes. despair. But to think that God could use what I believe was the very thing the enemy wanted to take you out with, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to destroy her. I, she she loves Jesus. Well, I'm going <laughs> to take her out. And God goes, mm, no. I'm going to reveal myself yes, and then I'm going to use Sarah to bring light to some people's darkness. And, you know, I'm sure there were many moments when it might've been easier uh, either not to even share this part of your story uh, (laughs) or, or just kind of sugarcoat it. But I so appreciate the honesty uh, that you share and just kind of taking us on your journey, you know, with your theology degrees, uh, you, you speak of something called the, the, oh boy, I'm going to say it wrong. Theodicy? Is that <laughs> Theodicy. Right? Well done. Well done. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, will you unpack that for us? Absolutely. I had not encountered the word before I, I, I ended up in Oxford to study it. But it basically, it's it's a Greek word and it's the combination of, of the word for God and justice. And what it, it basically is, it's the study or the discipline of in, in theology of how do we justify God? How do we say that God can still be good and still be powerful Mm -hmm. and allow or suffer a world where evil takes place? And there's lots of different ways to answer that, even within the Christian world. And so I think my study, you know, I came to, um, I started my, this very basic course in theology and one of the lecturers stood up to talk about this. And I was like, this, this is what I've been, this is my question. These are, this is my realm. I want to understand this. Yeah. So it's basically that. And you, there's a lot of different ways to answer that and to answer whether God allows it, whether he causes it, whether it's, you know, humans who do it. There's lots of different ways to go about it. But basically, that is what the Odyssey is. Yeah. Well, and I know there there are so many different viewpoints of it all. Mm-hmm. Where did you find yourself landing in that whole uh, idea of the sovereignty of God and the human, the free will of man? <laughs> I think I'll I'll jump straight into the middle and say I think it's a tension and I think there's tension and I think yeah. that there's mystery. So that's the first thing I want to say is that um I think I came to realize that there are some things I can't absolutely answer mm-hmm. this side mm-hmm. of heaven. Um yeah. but I think that I did come strongly to believe that um and this really shapes me that God God pain is not necessary to God's plan for the world. He didn't mm-hmm. need to create a universe where, you know, suffering was fundamental to his plans. I think suffering is not something he, um, you know, plans in and uses strategically. Um, and there's a, there's a difference between, you know, and I think there, this is where the mystery and the tension is of his discipline and his, you know, the way he, he hones and forms us. But I think God does not, God is not tempted by evil, nor does he use it. And um, I think one of my, professors said so clearly, you know, the only, the only defense for God against the, the charge of having made a world riddled with gra- grief and doubt and suffering is that he didn't. He created yeah. a world meant to reflect his wholeness and his goodness. And, you know, part of what it meant to create beings in his own image was to, um, was to give them, as von Balthasar, one of my favorite theologians would say, to give him the radiant gift of freedom that God himself has, which is the capacity to act the capacity to genuinely respond to God in love, that we were given that yeah. profound gift of, of freedom. 
And that can, you know, the only way to be truly free is we can use that to respond, to love, to create with God, to act um, in sync with his goodness and his will, um, or we can use it to act against him. And so I think there is, I really do believe that that beauty witnesses to an agency that we have, um, mm. you know, to either destroy the world or to order it. And, you know, within that, you know, human agency, I, I would call, say that we have what's called a contingent freedom to use very formal terms, but it just means our freedom is based on God's choice to give us freedom. So I think that his sovereignty and his, his will will always prevail in the end. But within this story that he's telling, um, we genuinely have the capacity for meaningful choices. Um, and that's why I think beauty also speaks to me so powerfully is it's, it's a choice to respond to it and it's a choice to create it. Um, it's a choice right. to offer it to another. And, and that's what God did for me. Um, it's how he shows us. It's what Christ did in coming to you know, Jesus to bear our sin. Um, and, you know, he shows us what it means to act in total love and to be a bringer of, of wholeness and healing to the world. Yeah. Wow. Deep, deep thoughts and, <laughs> and thoughts that I've been really kind of trying to unpack in my own mind, you know, mm. of, of how does this work? Because I think so often I, I'm, I'm either seeing, I'm just seeing a lot of Christians either vilify God mm. or, or act as though God is completely out of control, you know? And so how to find that place where we live in this fallen, broken world uh, can, you know, touched by evil, we were never intended to know. And yet, rather than pushing the reset button, God chooses to harness it and, and work yes. it for good, you know, and I, I think it's so interesting that, you know, the story of Adam and Eve, they had perfection, they knew only good, yes, and yet they turned their heart on against God. And yet here comes Job. And, you know, from what I've, studied scholars believe it, they place it on the timeline around Genesis 10 or 11. So it's not, yes. not very far away from the <laughs> garden of Eden. And here's a man who had experienced the blessings of God, had them all taken away by the enemy, you know, give, given permission by God. And yet rather than vilifying God, um, Job vindicates him by continuing to trust him, even in the midst of all the questions. And I, I love this idea of not only seeing beauty and, and, and seeing God in the middle of beauty, but then being willing, even in the middle of our suffering and pain to produce beauty. How did that, how did that work itself out in your life? I think that the farther I went, the more I realized that it was kind of the the places where I wrestled with my sorrow that I found mm -hmm. the truest things about God in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that the more I understand God's presence and working in my life and in my heart and the way that um, I think just the nature of suffering evil, I think something I've come to really believe is that um, I think one of the things that that evil is intent upon in our lives is to to make us despairing and to make us hopeless. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's really interesting in Tolkien's work, which I think was one of the things that really spoke to me. There's a clear line in which the people who embrace despair, who believe the voice that says there is no hope, there is no, you know, there will be no future. There is no great story. 
you know, just pretty much embrace the destruction. There's nothing you can do that those people, um, they kind of were on the path to death that they, that they caused disaster, that they, they, it wasn't, you know, what looked like, you know, stark truth was actually a very specific way of seeing the world. And it was one that led mm-hmm. them to destruction. And, and, and they often took their, the people around them with it, with them in that path. Whereas the, the wise and the heroes in, in Tolkien's story, they don't deny, um, you know, the, the real, the real presence of evil and the real possibility of, of total despair and death, but they refuse the way of despair, which is inaction. They say, I have the chance to be part of this goodness that comes in the world. It is, you know, in mm-hmm. one sense, every small act contributes to the greatness of the story that's told. And so I think on some level, I just began to realize on every day when I wake up with these images in my mind, um, I can either believe the story they tell in me, which is one of total and utter despair that nothing I love is safe, that, you know, that I am corrupted and not worthy of love, uh, that, you know, the, that the world will never be healed either within me or without me, or I can defy this darkness and say, I will live by the beauty I've seen. And the more I became aware of that capacity in myself to choose, the more I wanted to choose to engage, yeah. to, to create. And I think that, you know, as I look through scripture, we were made in the image of a creative God. And, you know, God's one of the God's first acts in the Bible is to create and to bless and then to call us to act in his image. And I think that part of our being redeemed in the midst of our pain, of part of what Christ came to do is to make us and renew that capacity to be creators in his image, to mm-hmm. to be people in whose presence the kingdom of God is coming because our lives reflect the wholeness and the health and the healing of God. And that that every place that we are, and I think I encountered this in the lives of very specific people, and it helped me to find that as well. But where those people were, where I am, there, you know, the kingdom of God is either coming or, or, or absent. And I wanted to be a person in which the kingdom was coming, in which mm-hmm. you know, my home, my life, my belief that you could step in and you know, kind of stand in the atmosphere of hope. And I think the more I encountered that in other people and in story, the more I just felt empowered. Um, to choose and to choose well, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know, I know a lot of us, um, we look at the situation of the world and what we're currently walking through. I, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of people struggling right now and oh my goodness, it feels like just a spirit of fear of doom mm-hmm. has descended on the world. And unfortunately, even on the body of Christ to where we forget, you know, Jesus already told us all of this stuff was going to be happening that, but to be of good cheer because he overcomes the world. But I would, I would just love maybe if you wouldn't mind just unpacking some of the practical things that have helped you to, to take that choice because mm. um, we all know we have it, but sometimes when we're in the middle of that heaviness or that despair, as, as you mentioned, it's, it's hard to see the good or hard to choose the good. So how do we do that, Sarah? I think three things come immediately to mind. And um, one of them first is, I think the older I get, the more I really believe, don't suffer alone. Don't suffer in isolation. I think that pain is the great isolator. And that is exactly where evil would have us, is um, alone by ourselves, believing all the the dark things in our mind. And I think the the farther I go, the more I believe in 
and drawing help into this darkness and having companions and friends whose voices can speak a different story to us. And I, um, you know, my mom has been instrumental in, in being one of those voices of truth and goodness in my life. And my husband has continued that he is, um, he is a, a rooting for me in reality and goodness. Um, and he helps to kind of anchor me uh, in the midst of my, my tornado mind. So I think reaching out to others, asking for help, um, I've had a kind of counselor and spiritual director who really helped me and continues to, um, to find God's presence, to hold to it. Um, so I think companionship and community, but second, um, on a daily basis, I think, and this goes back to my my love for words, but I think words make worlds. I think that the words we read, the books we read, the scripture we encounter, um, those words have the power to narrate our lives to us. And I, um, I think on a fundamental level, I believe that we are meant to engage with life-giving redemptive words every day. Um, I think first with scripture, how can we know the goodness of God's story if we aren't engaging with yeah. our own story in scripture. I mean, that is our epic story. That is our Lord of the Rings, um, is is the Bible. And and we find in it who we are and what we are called to and the hope. You know, I think when you read some of Paul's passages, you know, he he struggles for words, you know, the surpassing beauty, the goodness, the you know, mm-hmm. love beyond all measure. Um, but we need those words because those are the narrative words that will shift our our idea of what our story is from darkness to life. And along with that, I read novels, poetry. I think having, you know, theology, I surround myself with good words because I know that they will shape my thoughts, that they will form my view, that they will companion me throughout my day. And in the midst of some of my, you know, worst episodes of OCD, when just nothing helps, you know, sometimes I can cling to a phrase, a word, a line Mm -hmm. from something I've read that brings me hope. And the other thing I would say, and this I would say this is the very incarnational thing, I think, and especially for me right now with young children, but I, I this was very much a theme throughout. Um, we had, you know, quite severe lockdowns here in England and amidst that isolation and amidst, you know, the kind of shutdown of everything, I began to really, I think, value even more than I ever have before the kind of radical goodness of the tiny acts of beauty, collecting flowers mm-hmm. for the table, planting a garden, you know, kneading bread and smelling it and serving it. The more I just so believe that the whole world was created in such a way that we were meant to taste and touch and smell and listen to God's goodness. And I think that this year, especially, I have really come to believe that one of the great ways to to counter the darkness, both in myself and to engage with with really fighting it, is to wake and listen to the bird song to create these spaces. You know, I see this for my children where we are wondering, where we are watching. Um, And part of that for me really means, um, and I I really think this is something we all need to think about is probably gonna be part of my next book, but stepping back from the furor and the fury of the online world. um, I think we are so sucked into, you know, the constant state of disaster that we can witness on our screens. And our screens are so present with us um, that I think, I found I found certainly for me that to put that aside to to choose a different way by which my life is framed. I still use it, of course, but I try not to ever make it the first thing I check. Um, that my first encounter be with scripture. That my first thing I see be 
you know, the, the dawn light of a new day, that it be the fragrance of coffee, mm-hmm. that it be these things connect us to the world God has made in a very physical, humble way, a very hobbit-like way. But in Tolkien's story, hobbits were the ones who saved the world in a way. <laughs> they, <laughs> you know, they had this humility and this sense of, of the goodness of common life that I think was quite redemptive. Yeah. So what I think I hear you saying is that we need to practice being present to the life we have at that moment, rather than the fears of the future or the regrets of the past, just like being in the moment, which for some of us comes naturally. And for others of us, we're just not wired that way. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Does it kind of come more naturally to you, Sarah, or have you had to learn how to engage in the here and now? Um, I don't think it's natural to me at all in the sense of I'm, I'm quite an intuitive who's always looking to the future. I can mm-hmm. always see the next thing across, you know, over the horizon, the better thing, the new thing I want to try. Um, but I do think it is, it is that engagement with the here and now, but it's the engagement within the idea of, of wonder, of seeing what is performing as gift of understanding the preciousness of the ordinary. And that I think sometimes we can think, well, I'm not going to encounter beauty. How can God possibly reach me in my you know, humdrum ordinary. And actually it's those tiniest places where his light is breaking in at all times. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, learning to live in that present is not just being aware, but it's, it's looking as if on a treasure hunt. It's looking with the eyes of small children. Yeah. It's very helpful to be with my little ones right now. You know, everything they see is, is startling. It's incredible. It's a miracle. It's, yeah. you know, bird and sky and cookie and chocolate. Oh my goodness. And, you know, the wind and the trees. And I think when you encounter the world in such a way, you begin to feel yourself blessed walking amidst miracles. And that is that is the point at which God's goodness and his presence becomes visible. And I think that the practice of that, that sight, that holy, renewed, innocent sight is one of the things we're called to as Christians, is the renewal of yes. our minds and visions to that receiving of all that God is that witnessing of his goodness. Well, it, you know, it says, unless we're like little children, we're going to miss the kingdom of God. <laughs> you know, we're not going to yes. inherit it. And so to have that childlike faith, because, you know, I'm coming to realize I'm either going to be childlike or I'm going to be childish. <laughs> that's, just <laughs> that's great. How I roll, <laughs> you know, but if I can, I, if I can really trust that I have a good, good father, even in the midst of difficult times, then, then I think I, I am better able to receive the gift, to receive, yes. you know, I, you use that phrase of, of and I, I may be saying it wrong, but that your spiritual director helped you kind of grab on to his presence. Was that how you said it? Yes. I think to recognize it, to, to believe in its reality, to learn to listen for it. And, and he, it's interesting. We talked a lot about prayer and, you know, how do you engage with the Holy Spirit? And, you know, I came in with those questions one day. I was expecting him to, you know, tell me to contemplate for an hour or, you know, get up at <laughs> 5 a.m. and think deep thoughts. And he was like, well, what you might want to do is like choose a prayer and write it out or wear a bracelet. And then, you know, every time you see it, thank God for his goodness or choose a color. He was just giving mm. me these almost childlike, childish right. almost activities. But what I found, and, you know, he was, he's, he's um, both a, a priest and a student of psychology, but the way that we engage is that these very humble, very tiny things, but that they make up our consciousness, that they form our whole days, the way that we choose these little things. Yeah. 
So as you, you know, I think I heard you say a little while ago, as you still are overwhelmed with some of these terrible thoughts that Mm -hmm. come unfed and unbidden, how, are there any practical tools that you've learned to just kind of distract or, or break that train of thought? I know there have been times and seasons in my life where I find myself um, waking up with a sense of impending doom. Mm. And, you know, that if I'm not careful, it can infect and affect my whole day. Mm. What are some some tools maybe you've learned in your journey that could help us get out of that kind of thinking and onto a new tract? Um, I think one of the things, and I think this is probably true of most people, even um, without mental illness, but certainly with my illness, I think what I have learned is that there is no arguing with it. So when I try to argue mm. with my my mind and engage these deep fears, um, I can always reason with myself why there's a reason I should be afraid because we live in a yeah. fallen world. Um, right. So there's a sense in which I have learned that the way that I best engage my worst images, my worst fear is simply to turn from it. And that's not, it's, it's not light. I'm not stuffing it. Um, you know, if there comes a thing that I'm worrying consistently about, I will talk it through with my husband. I will journal about it. Um, you know, I address the things that that I realize are genuine themes of fear that I need to work through. But for the ones that come again and again, I, I'm aware that this is just kind of a a weather of the mind. Um, mm-hmm. I have found that the the most helpful thing for me to do is turn to other things. For me, that's been really stories and. I was like this, um, with this last pregnancy, I had a lot of OCD and depression in the early part of the pregnancy, which is just very standard for me. And there was a, a sense in which, um, there, there, well, there was a season in which I just, um, I, I, again, kind of like early days of OCD, couldn't engage well with scripture, just couldn't, um, find God in it. But I, I've learned to trust God's kindness towards me and his, yeah. his being unthreatened by my frailty. And, you know, the way that I could kind of get a hold of God and feel close to him was by watching Call the Midwife episodes, you know, by myself <laughs> in my bed at the end of the day. And in these stories, I just touched this tenderness and saw, you know, the witness to the goodness of life and, you know, people caring for each other. And I remember I would just cry and be like, Lord, I like you so much. I'm sorry I can't read scripture, but I really believe you're true. And I'm really glad I watched this show. So, <laughs> you know, I think there's a great grace and I've come to accept that God gives us the grace of of these delightful things that help us through hard times. And he's not wringing his hands because, darn it, we didn't get to, you know, read our five verses. That this is not, you know, he engages with us regardless of our frailty. Yeah. I know that's one of my favorite verses. He knows my frame. He Mm. knows I am but dust. (laughs) Thank goodness. (laughs) Oh, I know. It's been so freeing to realize he's not as disappointed in me as I am. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't this the truth? (laughs) Oh, it's such good news. It's such good news. I kept thinking that, you know, I had to arrive that somewhere along the line that I, you know, would reach some sort of perfection and then God could be happy with me and I could be (laughs) happy with me. And it's been in the broken places. It's been in those places where I clearly know I am not enough. Yes. (laughs) But I found his love and his mercy. I, I was thinking of a verse that God's used in my life a lot. Um, let me see if I can find the right translation. New King James version of Isaiah 45, three says, God says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches 
of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. Mm. You know, and just to think, I I did a study once on just darkness in scripture, because I always think darkness is horrible. Like, no, bad, bad darkness. (sighs) But it's so often how many times we're told that that he's the God of the light, yes, but he's also the God of the dark. And, uh, you know, if we can realize that he's going to meet us there. Sometimes, you know, we walk through those dark, dark times and we think it's all wasted. But I've found on the other side, when I reach in my pockets, he's lined them with gold, you know? Yes, absolutely. The treasures of darkness. But we need eyes to see. We really do. Because this, none of what you are talking about comes naturally we we need the Holy Spirit's help. And so I would just love to have you pray over us, Sarah, as we mm. close. Oh, it'll be a pleasure. Father, thank you so much for this conversation and this time. Thank you for your presence here with us as we speak together and for um, your presence in the heart of each one who's listening. Father, I pray first that you would help us to um, to be aware of your presence in our darkness and of your tenderness towards our grieving, and of the way you hold us and hold our hearts. And I pray that you'd also kindle in us the awareness of our own capacity to respond to you, to open Mm. our hands and accept your goodness, to be filled up to all the fullness of God with your love and your beauty. Help us to become those who witness your love as it enters the world, who point to it, who agree with it, who create it in our own lives and welcome your coming make room for you in our hearts, Lord, as you come to heal and redeem us. Speak to each person listening. Help them to know your tenderness. Help them to know the story that you're weaving for them in which there's healing and hope and goodness. Help them to be filled with a joy that defies the darkness of the world. Yeah. And help them to be those who bring joy and goodness to others. Lord, we love you and we are so grateful to be part of the story of healing and goodness that you are telling in the world. Bless you, our beautiful one, our beautiful God. Amen. Amen. Well, I really appreciate it, Sarah's words today. You know, I've always known that I love beauty and that it feeds my soul, but I don't know that I've ever connected it to my worship with the Lord. And so I'm going to start doing that. I'm just going to start thanking God and noticing the beauty, even in the ordinary. Because you know what? We become what we worship. And if we're looking at the yuck of this world, that's what we're going to produce in our own hearts and lives. Instead, we're invited to feast on the goodness of God. Well, you can go over to the show notes and purchase Sarah's book, This Beautiful Truth, through the links, as well as connect with her on social media. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, as we come to the close of this year, ah, It would be such a blessing if you take time and just hit subscribe. And then if you have time, would you please leave a rating and a review because it helps get this podcast in front of more people. Well, I don't know what you're going through. You may not live in a beautiful place like England or in my own home state of Montana, but I hope that you'll pause a moment and look for beauty. But most of all, I just pray that you and I will fix our eyes on Jesus and His beauty, because that's what's going to transform our lives. Because He wants to help us live and love and lead like Him, carrying His beautiful truth everywhere we go. God bless.